You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. So I'm very curious, um, when I say the name Jesus, very curious what might pop into your head. What other words, what ideas, what pictures, what images might come to your imagination? I remember when I was a kid, um, I had this little oval portrait of Jesus that my mom had hung on the wall in my room. And uh, maybe you've seen the same one. It was like this oval, like walnut frame that he was like backlit with this kind of yellow, warm light. He had this like these wonderful like brown hair. He's like looking off into the distance with this like very tender, very warm, but still kind of like stoic sort of look. He had this very Greek nose. I always thought that was interesting. A very Jewish rabbi who has a very Greek nose. I'm not sure how that worked, but I remember thinking, is this really what he looked like? I don't know, you know. I'd be very interested to think or to listen to you and just hear what comes to your mind when I say the name Jesus, I think is very important. Today starts this seven-week series just simply called What Jesus Said. And here's the idea. You can be ambivalent about a lot of things in life. You can have no opinion. You can be neutral. But the one thing that you cannot be neutral about is Jesus. He's the one person on which you must have an opinion. You must stand somewhere. This first century Jewish rabbi who made these incredible claims. And so here's the idea where we're going the next seven weeks. Um, God's word teaches that, that Jesus is the starting point of all true theology. And I'd be willing to bet that most of us in this room would go, yeah, yeah. But he said some really crazy things. Jesus said things like, you've heard it said, but I say to you. That's where we're going to be this morning. He talked about how persecution would necessarily follow those who follow him. He talked about how he was the only way to the Father, really. He said these incredibly controversial, tough sayings, and then he expects us to go, all right, sounds good, Jesus. What does this mean? Jesus is not cute, quaint, or cordial, but he is definitely compelling. And so before we get into our text today, which is going to be Matthew 5, you can get there if you want to, or flip there, scroll there, turn there, whatever it means for you. We're going to be in Matthew 5, but before we get there, um, I want to give you a few reasons why I think this series is so important now. Why, why focus seven weeks on these tough sayings of Jesus? There's three reasons, and if you're taking notes, these might be beneficial for you because they're going to sort of chart the course for where we're going. Why would we do this series? Reason number one, because clear teaching on Jesus shows us what it means to follow him. Clear teaching on Jesus gives us a clear picture, shows us what it means to follow him. Think about this for a minute. If, if I'm going to ask you to follow Jesus, you deserve to know what that means. You should know what that entails, right? If we're going to say we exist to be the church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone, which we say here a lot, if we're going to say that, you should know what that even means. It's incumbent upon us 
to do the work, to be clear about that. In his book, Mere Christianity, which is a book that everybody should read at least once in their lifetime, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, if you're thinking of becoming a Christian, I must warn you, you are embarking on something that will take the whole of you. I love that. And I love that because in a world of like political celebrity where everybody's kind of like selling something, I've always been very intrigued, very curious that Jesus almost tries to talk people out of it. You ever notice that when you read the gospel? It's not like, hey, I got everything you need. Come on, it's going to be really good. You're going to have an easy life if you come to me. He says, no, like foxes have holes, birds have nests. I don't. He says these things where it's almost like there's no bait and switch with Jesus. He's just very clear up front, and I really appreciate that. But the reason that we're focusing on these tough sayings, it isn't so that we can be catchy, it's so that we can be clear. When you say, I'm with Jesus, you're aligning yourself with someone who was crucified for teaching what he taught. When you say, make much of Jesus, we are not standing next to some mild, fair-haired, blue-sash-wearing guy who just wants to make everything better. We are aligning ourselves with someone who is necessarily countercultural, consistently controversial, and I feel it's unkind to hide that from you. So if you're on the fence about Jesus, I think it's actually kind to go, look, this is hard. And I think you need to see Jesus for who he is. Second reason that we want to focus on these clear teachings of Jesus, clear teaching on Jesus leads to a healthy expression of church. I don't know if you do much thinking about the role of the church in our world. I do. Um, not just our church, but, but the church. And honestly, like there's some nights it just keeps me awake. I wonder what the church of the future will look like. And I often wonder if the church is losing ground in our culture because maybe over the past 50 years or so, we've per- perfected the art of how to do church, and we've kind of forgotten about What does it really mean to follow Jesus? And those are not necessarily the same thing. We're not here to fill a building with people. We're here to fill people with Jesus. And those are very different things. So, for example, like, how do I do church? How do you do church? That's how do we make music everybody likes? How do we preach in a way that's catchy? How do we brand church in a way that has mass market appeal so the graph goes up and to the right? There's very little in me that wants to do that. That's not why I'm a Christian, and I don't think that's why you're a Christian. There's very little in me that actually can do that, to be honest with you. Like, I'm unwilling and unable, so it kind of works. <laughs> Here's a better question. How do I follow Jesus? One of my favorite writers and preachers, a guy named John Stott, puts it like this. He says, the pew is a reflection of the pulpit. Ouch. <laughs> The pew is the reflection of the pulpit. Here's what I take that to mean, is if we want to be a church that makes much of Jesus every day to everyone out there, we must clearly preach Jesus from up here. If the pew is the reflection of the pulpit, then Jesus must be the most prominent thing about who we are. There's this great story, um, late 19th century. um, There's this group of American tourists that were going to go tour London in the late 19th century, and um, their friends here in the States said, hey, you're going to be there over a Sunday. You need to go hear two preachers. One of them was named Joseph Parker. He was this great, very eloquent orator, like loved words, really good dynamics, good preacher, Joseph Parker. And then there was this other guy that nobody really heard of named Charles Spurgeon. And so they're like, well, okay, we'll see what we do. So Sunday morning, the American tourists, 
go to Joseph Parker's church, and they were blown away. Dude's an amazing preacher. And halfway through, true story, one of the tourists turned to the other one, and he says, I do declare, it must be said, for there is no doubt that Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher that ever was. Well, all right. So they were having lunch, and they said, well, should we go back to Sunday night at Joseph Parker's church? Because we'd really love to hear it again. And one of them said, well, our friends back in the States are going to ask us about this other guy. So they go see Spurgeon Sunday night. Halfway through the sermon, same guy turned to his friend. He says, I do declare it must be said, for there is no doubt that Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior that ever was. What does that mean? It means that preaching, if it is anything, is about announcing the wonder and beauty and power of Jesus. If all we have is a more impressive church, all we have is a more Christian-looking idol. But if we all start with the idea that Jesus is worth my life, whatever that costs, that he is Lord of my life, whatever that entails, if we start there, healthy church follows. You with me? Thank you. And then... When we get that order right, then spiritual consumers come, become spiritual contributors. Anyway, so clear teaching on Jesus leads to a healthy expression of church. That's reason number two. Reason number three, and probably the simplest reason, clear teaching on Jesus reminds us that we need him. Here's what I mean. You can tell a lot about a person by how they answer two questions. Question number one, what's wrong with the world? Question number two, what's the solution? You can tell an awful lot about how a person thinks and how they see themselves and how they see their world by how they answer those two questions. What's wrong with the world and what's the solution? In his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, D.A. Carson puts it like this. This is just great. Here's what he says. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But God perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and so he sent us a savior. I hope you resonate with that. Because I don't really care what you think about economics, politics, or the entertainment culture. I really don't. The reason that God came to us as a savior is because while those other topics are interesting, they are ultimately powerless because only Jesus softens a hard heart, only Jesus gives hope to a hopeless life, and only Jesus can make a dead man live. So what's wrong with the world? Me, my sin, my rebellion, my selfishness. What's the solution? Christ and Christ alone, everything else is static and in these static-filled days, the church must not lose sight of Jesus. I've said this a lot this year, but I believe it down to my shoes, that the church's job is to keep the gospel intact, to remind us that we all desperately need Jesus. So all of that is intro. <laughs> so here's where we're going today. Before we get there, here's my hope for this series. Seven weeks from now, I want you to leave more in love with Jesus than you are right now just to just lay it out there for you. If you're on the fence about Jesus, I want you off the fence. If your love for him has grown cold, I want it to be kindled and warmed. I want you to leave this series more in love with Jesus than you are this morning. So this morning we're looking at one phrase, five words that Jesus says that infuriates some people and motivates other people, and here they are, but I say to you. 
But I say to you, these five words that he says six times in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at all six of those in just a minute, but before we do, a little bit of context. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has been creating a little bit of a stir. He's been kicking up a little dust. He's been drawing the ire of a very religious group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees are experts in the Jewish law. Jewish law, 613 commandments, all nestled inside what we would call the Old Testament. 613 of them. You can find most of them in Exodus and Leviticus. Everything from what to where. Can't mix fabrics. No cotton poly. To what to eat. No bacon for you. What's a sacrifice? Spotless lamb on Passover. So how to celebrate festivals. Each one of these laws were given by God to his people for their good. And here's the idea. You follow the law, you enjoy God's favor. You break the law, you lose his favor. And the Pharisees love enforcing God's law because enforcing God's law gives them power. And they love twisting God's law, as we'll see this morning. Have you ever noticed that it's easier to change your behavior than your heart? Doing the right thing is easy, but doing the right thing for the right reason, that's a very different story, isn't it? So here's what the Pharisees say and how they've been leading God's people at the time that Jesus steps into the scene. Fix your behavior first, and then maybe your heart will follow. Get yourself right first, make yourself presentable, and then maybe God will be pleased with you. Righteousness comes from the outside in, not the inside out. Who do you think you are? And just in case you're curious, here's why Phariseeism is so compelling. Because if I only fix what's on the outside, I'll never have to deal with what's lurking here on the inside. And into that atmosphere of perception obsession steps this new teacher named Jesus. First, we meet Jesus when his cousin John points at him and says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is a startling statement. The centerpiece of all Jewish theology is this Passover lamb that you got to sacrifice once a year. And then here is this desert-dwelling, locust-eating dude named John points to Jesus and says, he's the lamb, not just a lamb. He's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. <laughs> what? How dare he? And then a little bit later, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus actually sits himself down in one of the synagogues where the Pharisees would teach, and they'd be around there with the scribes. He sits himself down, and he starts teaching. That would be like me going down to the courthouse in Canton when the judge is out on recess, sitting at the bench, plopping a nameplate down, and said, I will be judging today's cases. Right? That is incredibly presumptuous. Who would ever do something like that? But then the real jaw dropper is Matthew chapter 5. A crowd has been following Jesus the past few days. So Jesus climbs halfway up a hillside, sits down, and drops what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Three chapters, all Jesus, just extended monologue. It's one long sermon, all red letters. And all good sermons need a good intro, right? You guys know me. I love a good sermon intro. Draw attention, make a connection, provide direction, right? Establish this rapport with your audience. Here's Jesus' sermon intro. Take a look in verse 17. Here's what he says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Come back to that in a moment. 
For truly, I say to you, unless or until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And now watch this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Talk about alienating your audience. This is Jesus saying, those guys, like the really, really spiritual ones, those ones who are perfect in every possible way and lord their perfection over you, if you're not holier than they are, you don't even have a prayer. And if you were on that hillside, when those words echoed across that valley, you and I would have had the same visceral reaction. Jesus, if what you just said is true, what hope do I have? If those guys can't get it right, what chance do I have of getting it right? Righteousness that exceeds theirs, how is that even possible? Why is Jesus being so harsh? Quick side note, Jesus uses harsh words to reveal a problem that we can't solve. But, and this is super important to remember for the next few weeks especially, Jesus uses harsh words to reveal a problem that we can't solve, but he's also good enough to not leave us without the solution. Because although he is unquestionably just, he's also unbelievably good. And so with this impossible standard hanging out there, this hillside of eyes riveted on him and hearts flooding with futile fear, what follows are six teachings. Six little mini-sermons within a sermon. Six lessons that expand on our need for perfect righteousness. And I need to let you know, if you came in here this morning feeling really good about yourself spiritually, if you came in here thinking like you're cruising along, there is no way to get through what we're going to get through feeling good about yourself. And that's sort of the point. You're going to feel Jesus raise the bar and shine a light on things that we don't want to be seen. You ready? Like you're going to say, no, here we go. Here's what he says. Take a look in chapter 5, verse 21. He says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This is Jesus quoting Exodus 20 verse 13. It's basic stuff. Like, who's going to argue with that, right? Don't murder. And then he says this, but I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And anyone who says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What? Like, you can almost hear the like record scratch there. Angry with my brother. Gosh, I've been that. Insult somebody? I've done that said, you fool, I said that, worse. Hmm. Lesson two, take a look at verse 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And again, we're like, yeah, this is Exodus 20, verse 14. He's quoting 10 commandments here. And we know this. This is kind of a cultural faux pas, right? No brainer. You're not supposed to do that. Verse 28. But I say to you 
Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Stop. Do you realize what he's saying? Like, I'm not going to do a straw poll to embarrass everyone in the room, but is anybody innocent of this one? Is anybody exempt? Like, let's just level the playing heel for a second. He's not just talking about men. He's talking about either gender, any direction. Lustful intent? Huh. Okay. Lesson number three, 31. He says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this one is getting a little litigious. Here's the background. Jesus is partially quoting Deuteronomy 24, which is designed to present hasty divorces. Okay? In the Old Testament, a man could divorce his wife for anything that he found indecent in her. And so by the time Jesus is walking on the scene, the Pharisees had twisted that to say, look, if your wife burns dinner, divorce her. Just give her a certificate and you're good. If your wife, like, frowns at you or gives you the hairy eyeball, divorce her. Just give her a certificate. It's fine. So here's what Jesus says, verse 32. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, which is a general term that means two unmarried people having sex, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's a lot there that we're not going to get into this morning because it's obviously a heated issue, and it affects a lot of us in this room. Suffice to say that Jesus, when he looks at marriage, he's saying, this is not about, like, your personal preference here, guys. Like, this is not some flippant thing. This is about a covenant between a man and a woman for life. This is a bond, and it should not be dissolved lightly. This is about human dignity and covenant love, not personal preference or simple convenience. Hmm. Lesson number four. This is probably the most obscure for us in our day, but it's worth hearing. He says this. Again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This is Jesus switching tactics a little bit. He's not quoting a specific Old Testament verse. He's summarizing five different texts. And this has to do with making vows to God. We're like, you know, you just, you may not mean it in your heart when you make a promise, but you just say, well, I, I swear, I'll do it. Like what? Like good incantation, little magic words you sprinkle over your dark heart and God's just going to make it happen for you? Really? Here's what Jesus says. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or the earth, for it's the footstool. And then he just goes on and says, like, look, mean what you say and say what you mean. Don't think that you sprinkle some of God's like magic words on this and everything's going to go okay with you. Your heart's not even right. Empty words don't make anything better. Okay, two more little mini-sermons. How are you feeling right now? Here he goes. Verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now here Jesus quotes three texts that all basically say the same thing. Exodus 21, verse 14, Leviticus 24, 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. If somebody hits you, what? Hit him back. Interesting, because this is actually, it kind of makes sense, right? Think about this. It's kind of a way of diffusing the imbalance of the world. Like, we're, we're going to take care of things, and it keeps me from privatizing justice. You take my thing, I'll take your thing, and that way we're settled. 
And it feels right, too, right? You diffuse personal animosity by equally hurting another person. But here's Jesus, verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Let's continue. Just stay on that verse, but here's what he says. He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic or your shirt, let him have your your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who begs with you, from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So here's Jesus saying that if you want to be his follower, you shouldn't be known for insisting that others pay you back what they do to you. But we should be ready to forgo personal vengeance in favor of forgiveness. This is crazy talk. One more, and this is, at least for me, it's probably the toughest of all. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this one is different than the others. That's not in the Old Testament at all. You can search for it. You'll never find it. The closest we come is Leviticus 19.18, which basically says, do good to your countrymen, right? Like your friends, care for your friends. And the Pharisees added to it like, well, they're not your friends. You don't have to do that. Only the people that are kind of like you. Those are the people that you have to love. The other people, eh, not quite so much. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Especially in our current cultural climate. Sound familiar? Like any other world that you know? This feels right. Again, like if you're with me, I'll love you. But if you're against me, like you hurt my family, you burn me online, not so much. I don't have to love you. Here's what Jesus says. Don't resist the one who's evil. Gosh. Here's what he says in verse 44. I say to you, love your enemies and what? Pray for those who persecute you. This is over the top, Jesus. Seriously? Take a stand, coward. How are you going to get through life keeping your sanity if you're a doormat to everybody? And then the nail in the coffin is actually verse 48. (laughs) just this little holy tack on the end. Here's what he says in verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect. How? As your heavenly father is perfect. (laughs) And with that, I'm like, I'm out. Thanks, Jesus. It's been real. You're clearly a very good teacher. I appreciated the pep talk. I can't do that. I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. I just, I can't. And that's the point. Now, what is Jesus doing here? What is the deal? Lighten up a little bit, Jesus. Why can't we just live by grace? Why tighten the screws on us? What's he saying? Is the law the problem? Was God wrong in the Old Testament? Or is there something else the problem? Something deeper? Let's dig into this a bit. There are three possible options. We need to do some theology here, so I need you to walk with me. Three possible options for what Jesus is doing here. Option number one, he's saying that the law is pointless. And some commentators and some Christians take this view. Just take the Old Testament, throw it in the garbage. You don't need any of it. And at first glance, that kind of sounds like what he's saying. You heard this, but I say to you, like he gets out a big red marker and goes, here's the truth. 
Implication, everything you've heard, everything you've been taught, everything those guys have carried through the centuries is incomplete at best, wrong at worst. Congratulations, kids. Remember that whole, like, honor your mother and your father thing? You're off the hook. You don't have to do that anymore. We're done with that. Is that what he's saying? No. Sorry. Here's the problem with this view. If Jesus were saying that the Old Testament law is pointless, he would be essentially saying that God was wrong to give it to his people in the first place. This is an ancient heresy called antinomianism. There you go. It's fun to say. You want to say it? Antinomianism. There you go. <laughs> That's awesome. It just means once you say you're a Christian, you can live however you want. No fruit, no problem. No one's the boss of you. You can live like a, or you can live saying you're a Christian, but you can live like the devil. It doesn't matter. You don't have to have any sign of faith and fruit in your life. It's not what God's word teaches. There's a lot wrong with this, most notably what Jesus said when he began, when he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish it, but what? To fulfill it. Now, what's that mean? He doesn't think the law is the problem. He doesn't want to do away with it. He has a plan for the law. More on that in just a minute. The law isn't pointless, and so option one can't be right. We can't just flush everything before Matthew. Option two, it's kind of the opposite extreme. Maybe he's saying that the law is not enough. He's like doubling down. Pendulum swinging the other way. He's like, not only can you not kill anybody, you can't be angry with somebody. Not only can you not commit adultery, you can't even lust at anybody. And if you do, oh man, right? Maybe the law didn't go far enough. Taken this way, Jesus is daring his audience to outdo the Pharisees, basically reducing the faithful Christian life to a holiness contest. Saying, those guys over there, you've got to do more than they're even willing to do. Here's the problem. Reducing the Christian life to a holiness contest goes against with what Jesus says at the end, where he says you must be perfect, not like the Pharisees are perfect, but what? As your father is perfect. That's judging the wrong standard. This is like all of us standing on the shore in California trying to jump to Hawaii. Like, some of us may get farther than others, but pretty soon, like, the reality becomes clear. Ain't nobody getting there. And so Jesus says, this isn't about like me being holier than you. This is about me being holy like God wants me to be holy. The question isn't, can you be really impressive? The question is, can you be perfect? The standard isn't my goodness or my effort. The standard is God's perfection. And so reducing the Christian life to a holiness contest is another heresy called legalism, which basically says like, I got to fix all the outside stuff so everybody can be impressed with me. And so God will be pleased with me. Well, that's not what God's word teaches. So this can't be right. So if he's not saying the law is pointless, and if he's not saying it didn't go far enough, what's Jesus saying? And then this is what confuses the lawless and confounds the legalists. Option three. Jesus is saying that the law is actually good, but it has been misinterpreted and misapplied. And for this, I want to jump to words from the Apostle Paul. I just want you to listen 
to this. This comes out of Romans chapter 7. Just listen and tell me if you've felt this before. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 7. He says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? See him asking that question? He says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. All that means is like, have you ever heard somebody say, don't think of a pink elephant? What are you all thinking of? Pink elephant, right? Don't lust after your neighbor. It's funny how that just turns on, isn't it? But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me, in me, all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What strong words. Then he continues where he says this, Did that which is good then bring death to me? Like, is God the reason why I'm a mess? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And tell me if you've ever felt this. Here's what he says. I did not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do but I do the very thing that I hate. You ever felt that? Like, I know what's right. I know what I should do. I can't do it. What is that? He's being brutally honest, and he's naming a frustration that everybody feels until he finally collapses into exhaustion, this heap of spiritual self-hatred where he asks this question. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's the question. Just as meaningful to a group of people on a hillside listening to Jesus talk as it is for us right here in 2022 North Canton, Ohio. How can I be saved? What hope does a sinner like me have? Here's the point. God did not give you the law to dare you to keep it. God gave you the law to show you that you never could. This isn't the problem. I'm the problem. It's in me. Paul isn't talking about sin only in terms of what I do out here, action. He's talking about sin in terms of who I am. I want those things because I am those things. And no matter what I do out here, the biggest problem still exists in here. There's not a rug big enough to sweep it under, nor can I distract myself with enough good behavior to pretend that it's not there. Mandy and I were talking about this this week, just like living in our world in these days and like what it feels like. I don't know if you feel this, but it feels like the world is just like increasingly bitter and cynical when we used to be like joyful and trusting. (laughs) And I feel like a sponge that got dropped in the middle of a dirty sink and then like squeezed. And then like somehow it all got in. And like, it's a very weird metaphor maybe, but like enough to say that like it isn't just out here. It's in here. And it's been in there for as long as I can remember. It's, and, and you just squeeze it out and you leak that toxicity on other people. But until this thing is transformed, it doesn't matter what you do. I was born a dirty sponge in a dirty sink. (laughs) 
And when you get to the point where you feel hopeless and overwhelmed and you want to give up and you realize that God's perfect standard and you feel the weight of your own sin and your own inability and you want to throw up your hands and go, Jesus, I just can't. When you get there, you are exactly where you need to be. I need Jesus to do for me something that I can't do for myself. I don't need to behave righteously. I need to be made righteous. And here's where Jesus' words in Matthew 5 find their full weight and beauty, that Christianity never starts with what I do or don't do for God. It starts with what God has done for me. Jesus' words are not cute, fortune cookie advice inviting us to just try and be nicer people. His words are six soul-scorching, damning indictments inviting us to become new people. How can I be saved? What hope does a sinner like me have? Glad you asked. I want to fast forward 20 years from Paul or from Jesus on the hillside to another letter that Paul wrote. Paul started a church in a city called Corinth. And after they were up and running, he wrote them a couple of letters. The second letter he wrote them, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 21, says this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who's the him? Who is him who knew no sin? Jesus was made to be sin, that we might become what? The righteousness of God? That is a monumental declaration. You want to be whole? You want to be free? You want to get that shame monkey off your back? You need Jesus. Here's what this means. I don't keep the law because the law was kept for me. I don't seek to fulfill the law because the law was fulfilled for me. I'm not trying to measure up. I live by faith, trusting that Christ measured up for me, and his righteousness is now my righteousness. So when God looks at you, if you claim Christ, he doesn't see your failures and your fears and your regrets and your sin. He sees Christ's righteousness on you. So now you are perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is that? This is the gospel. The good news of the gospel is although I am way worse off than I ever thought I could be, I am way more loved than I could ever imagine. That although you are more lost than you'd ever admit, there is a God who moved heaven and earth to come find you. He is offering you life. He wants you as his own. He is chasing you, and he is relentless. Now let's get really practical here in the last three minutes. This extreme over here, antinomianism, lawlessness, right? Live like you want. This is easy. Just don't care, right? Just go like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I said a prayer once, walked an aisle once, and I've spent the rest of my life just kind of doing whatever I want to do and like never cheated on my spouse, never really killed anybody. I just kind of stay away from the biggies and you know, I feel like we'll probably be okay. Okay. All right, it's one idea. Um, you willing to bet eternity on that? <laughs> the 
this other extreme over here, legalism, is also super easy. Right? Just get out my spiritual measuring stick and like compare myself with everybody else. Right? You don't drink alcohol? Awesome. I don't even drink IBC root beer because it looks like a beer bottle. You don't go to R&R movies? Like, R&R movies don't go. You know what? I don't even go to movie theaters because then I think you might have seen me walk out of a movie that may have been an R-rated movie, and so I don't even go. Never go over the speed limit? Awesome. I always go 10 miles under the speed limit just to make sure I don't go over the speed limit. This is an easy way to live, right? It's confining. Like, it's imprisonment. It's stifling. There's no joy there. But it's easy because I know how well I'm doing because I compare myself to all you. And I know a lot of Christians who live that way. And it's terrible. We know how well we're doing because of what we can see. And my question is like, okay, you may be able to jump pretty far, maybe a little farther than me, but are you perfect? You willing to bet your eternity on that? Here's the thing. Trusting Christ is terrifying. Because it takes what this one and this one don't have a clue about. It takes faith. And that's what Jesus is asking this hillside of potential believers and torqued off Pharisees to consider. He's saying it's either me or nothing. I'm either 100% right or I'm 100% wrong. Being my disciple is either completely worthless or it's worth your life. Let's be done with the fence writing stuff. What are you going to do? Who are you going to trust? And as those words rang out across that hillside, hundreds of people craving righteousness. This sounds way too good to be true. And it in fact is. So one parting question for you. What are you counting on for righteousness? And in case you missed it, for quick review, here are your options. You have three. Ignore God's law and say, eh, I'll roll the dice. Maybe God will let me in on good behavior. I'm a pretty good person. Okay. Are you perfect? Try to keep the law or whatever standard you want to put in front of yourself to convince yourself that you're not as bad off as you actually are. You're going to ratchet down your efforts, and maybe at the end of your life, like 51% good, 49% bad, then God's got to let you in because that's how that works. It's not at all how it works. Are you perfect? Interestingly, how both of those seemingly opposite poles end in the same place, isn't it? Fear, because you don't know. Option three. Trust Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. Jesus is alerting you to a problem that you can't solve, but he isn't leaving you without a solution. He's standing there saying, let me be the solution for you. Let me fulfill God's requirements for you. Let me offer my perfect life instead of yours. Let me be the lamb that you can't be. You don't need to behave righteously. You need to be made righteous. So, When Jesus says, but I say to you, he isn't just tightening the screws on the spirituality contest. He isn't begging you to believe that everything old is gone and done. He's saying, what if I'm it? What if I'm all you need? Wouldn't that be something? Let's pray. Lord, we do just say thank you because we believe by faith that you have done all that's required. Lord, we believe that when you came and stepped into this earth, that there wasn't anything that was left undone. 
You came with a very specific purpose that you filled completely. You did it with justice. You did it with holiness. You also did it with grace and mercy. Lord, we can never give you back that which you've given us. So we just say that we need you, we need you, we need you. And we say thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you have done. Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you and is living in fear, I pray today is the day where that fear can run and hide and they can know that when their time comes, that they will have a restored relationship with you that could start today. Hell canceled, heaven guaranteed because of what you've done on the cross. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.